The scripture passage we will be looking at together this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4. going to begin reading in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians verse 18 and then read through to chapter 4 verse 7. Please give your attention to God's word. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? One of the more popular Bible verses that you'll hear, not only in the church, but sometimes even outside the church these days, is judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. Unfortunately, what you'll usually hear that, the context in which you usually hear that, is somebody who's trying to shield themselves from being evaluated for how they're behaving, how they're speaking, how they're acting. Usually, they'll respond by saying, but didn't Jesus say, don't be judgmental? What's interesting, if you look up the word judgmental in the dictionary, the definition of the word judgmental is being inclined to make moral judgments. Is there anything inherently evil with being judgmental with that definition? Doesn't everybody make moral judgments depending upon what their morals are? But when's the last time you heard somebody being called judgmental as a compliment? There's a lot of confusion about what it means to make judgments, especially when it comes to making judgments about other people, other sinners. 
But I am certain that when Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged, I am certain that he didn't mean that we are never to form a negative opinion about somebody else and their behavior or express it. That's not what he meant. In order to understand what he really meant, you have to study that statement within the context of the Sermon of the Mount where he said it. It's interesting, it comes near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And right before he said it, he spent most of chapter 6 of the book of Matthew telling us what the hypocrites are like. He said these hypocrites prey on the street corners in order to draw attention to themselves and their piety. That when they pray, they heaped up phrases and words to impress other people around them. And that when they fasted, they made themselves look miserable so that they would get the credit for their piety from other men. And at the end of all that, he says, do not be like them. Well, how can we not be like them if we're not making any judgments about them and their behavior? Five verses after he says, judge not that you be not judged, this is what he says. Listen carefully to what he says. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot. Now how are we supposed to know who the dogs and hogs are around us unless we are making judgments about their behavior and their words? Those who are hostile against the gospel. The Lord expects us to be able to recognize those who are hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Beware of false prophets. How are we to beware of false prophets? He says, You will recognize them by their fruits. So, clearly Jesus, when he says, Judge not, that you be not judged, clearly he's not saying do not make any negative opinions or have any negative opinions about other people and their behavior, their words, their actions, whatever. And he's not saying keep them to yourself. Obviously expressing a negative opinion about somebody else isn't necessarily the kind of judging that Jesus is condemning. And so really that whole question is at the background of this passage that we're studying here in 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4. The issue of judging, that there is a proper way to judge and an improper way to judge. And it's very important that we figure out the right way to do it, because we must do it, but also that we avoid doing it in the wrong way. Remember in the context here, in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been dealing with what he considered the most serious issue, because we've seen that the church in Corinth had a lot of issues, but the most serious issue was that they were divided. That they were divided. There were deep divisions in their midst. There were rivalries among them. They were quarreling with one another. And so obviously there was sin in the camp, and he attributed... One of the key reasons for the divisions in their midst to what he calls in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 21, we read a moment ago, boasting in men. Instead of boasting in the Lord, they were boasting in men. What they were doing among all the leaders that God had given to the church, they were choosing one, and they were putting that one up on a pedestal, 
and boasting in that one leader while criticizing and slandering the other leaders. And that's what was showing itself as division in their midst, boasting in men. And in chap- at the end of chapter 1 and in chapter 2, he went to the root of that. Why were they doing that? How did this happen that they began boasting in men instead of boasting in the Lord? And we saw it's because they were allowing worldly wisdom to seep into the church. They were starting to think like men, ordinary, unregenerate men outside the church. They are starting to think like the world and judge people by worldly standards instead of by God's standards. And we've already seen, and we will continue to see, that Paul had been criticized, as was continuing to be criticized over and over again by these Corinthian Christians. And it's painful to be criticized, and Paul deals with it to the point where he spends a lot of 2 Corinthians actually defending his role and his apostleship and his authority as a leader in the church. But notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 3. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. It's a small thing, very small thing. I don't really care. It doesn't really bother me that you're judging me this way. You're criticizing me. I wish I could get there. To be at that point, I could say it's a very small thing that you're judging me and criticizing me. But Paul was there, he says. He goes on to say, in fact, I do not even judge myself. Now again, clearly he's talking about the wrong kind of judgment because there is certain, Paul would never say, I'm above criticism. How dare you criticize me? I'm an apostle. He would never say that. That he expected the people in the church to evaluate his teaching, his life. He called upon them to evaluate and to imitate him as he imitated Christ. And clearly, he's not saying that he never evaluated his own teaching, his own ministry, his own lifestyle. He's clearly not saying that. We're all called to do that. What he's addressing is improper judgment. The Corinthian Christians were wrongly judging him in the sense that Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount not to do it. And so in order to know what wrong judgment is, let's start by talking, and I think Paul lays it out here, what is proper judgment in the church? How should we judge others properly? The first principle that Paul lays out for us is that we must recognize who is the one true judge of all people. The one true ultimate judge of all people. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul defines himself in terms of God's call upon his life. And this is how he wants the Corinthian Christians to look at him and to evaluate him. He says... This is how one should regard or judge or discern. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. And that is stated in that way in a possessive sense. They are Christ's servants. The leaders of the church are Christ's servants. It's very similar to what he said back in chapter 3, verse 3, where he said, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Leaders in the church are assigned to that role by the Lord, and they are his servants to the church. That's a very important distinction for the church to remember, and it's very easy for us to forget, that leaders are servant leaders, first of all, and that they are servants to the church, but they are servants of Jesus Christ. 
They are accountable to him. He is the judge. No earthly person is the ultimate judge. And they are accountable to him. Notice what he says in verse 4. For I am not aware of anything against myself. Again, see, he's evaluating himself. Evaluating his ministry, evaluating his teaching, evaluating his lifestyle. And he's saying, I have a clear conscience. I'm not aware of any sin that, that I need to repent of before you. I have confessed all my sin that I'm aware of, and I have a clear conscience before you. But, he says, he says, I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Very important for all of us to remember that we must evaluate our lives in light of, of God's truth, but we are not the ultimate judge. And just because we feel okay with where we are doesn't mean the Lord is okay with where we are. It's not actually very certain that he's not pleased with much in your life and there are many things as Tom mentioned earlier that we are unaware of that are displeasing to the Lord he is the judge we are not the final judge even of our own lives let alone the lives of others and Paul was aware that actually we are actually a very bad judge of ourselves we are a very lenient judge when it comes to ourselves we tend to rationalize and excuse the words, thoughts, and deeds in our lives that are displeasing to the Lord. So this is basic to the Christian life, and this is a message Paul's trying to get across to this church as being so critical of him and the other leaders. He's saying, Jesus is the ultimate, absolute, final judge, and you're not. I had a very practical lesson of this when my kids were younger. One of my kids who was a middle schooler, while I was at work one day, decided that the child that was a preschooler needed to be punished. And so took it upon that child, took it upon themselves to carry out that punishment and put the preschooler over the lap and spank the preschooler. When I got home, I had to give a very quick and succinct lesson on ultimate authority, ultimate judgment, and who is accountable and who has the authority in the house. That it's not up to that child to carry out the punishment. That I am the ultimate authority in the, in the household and that they needed to subject themselves to that. But I thought about it later and I thought, don't we do that to each other all the time? We want to carry out the punishment. We want to make sure that the other person pays for what they did wrong. We put ourselves in the place that only the Lord belongs, of being the judge and jury and final word on the behavior of others. We always need to remember that Christ is on the throne of judgment. He is the one to whom we are all accountable. And that's why, quite honestly, it's good that we parents learn how to confess our sins and admit our mistakes to our children. That's not only good modeling in terms of teaching our children what repentance looks like and living by the gospel looks like. That's essential for that reason. But it's essential for the reason of saying, who's the judge of this household? Because I'm not the ultimate judge of my household. I'm accountable to Christ for how I lead my children, how I parent, how I live before them. I'm accountable to him. And I understand why parents find it hard to confess sins to your kids because your kids are sinners and they're going to take advantage of any weakness you show. You admit that you did something wrong, you're going to hear about it. They're going to take advantage of that. It's hard. You want to keep up this front of perfection in front of them so they never question you and they 
They trust in your authority, but that's a big, big mistake to make. When you go to your kid and say, I blew it, I was wrong, I made a mistake, I sinned. When you do that, they learn not only what a sinner looks like in repenting, but also who is the ultimate judge of the household. That my Lord and my judge is the same as their Lord and their judge, and we're both accountable to him. In Romans 14, Paul has a lot to say about judging. In that context, it has to do with debatable things in the life of the church. If you know Romans 14, it's about some that would eat meat and others that wouldn't eat meat, and some that observe special religious days and others that Christians that didn't observe special religious days. And so they were fighting, they were quarreling, they were divided over these things. And Paul doesn't address, and it's kind of frustrating sometimes, you go, well, what, what's Paul's position on, that, on those two subjects? He doesn't really address that. What he addresses is the judging that was going on in their midst. He says, stop judging each other in, improperly. He says in verse 4 of Romans 14, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Think about that when you find yourself judging your brother or sister in Christ. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Your brother and sister of Christ don't serve you. They serve Christ. Who are you to judge the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And notice what he goes on to say. He says, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Remember who the judge is in all your relationships. And it's very important that we understand that if we're talking about a brother or sister in Christ, that sin has already been forgiven. That sin that is bothering us, that is, that is making us angry, that's making our life inconvenient, Christ already died for. It's been paid for and put as far away as east is from west. Keep that in mind of what the real judge has done as you deal with the sins of others around you. He will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The Lord judges us as believers in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are cleansed by his blood. We are no longer guilty of any of our sins, past, present, or future. And we are robed in the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at us, he sees those who are perfect. When God looks at that person who's sinning against you, who you're so annoyed by, so troubled by, so mad at, he looks at them and sees the righteousness of Christ. Remember who the ultimate judge is. And remember that he's coming again. See, that's where the patience comes from. That even though we don't see that judgment played out today, we know that it is coming because he has promised that he is coming again. He has promised that he will judge every thought, word, and deed. And he is faithful. And he is just. And he is full of mercy. That judgment day is coming so we can be patient with the sins of others. Because either Christ has already paid for them a long time ago at the cross, or the person who has sinned will pay for them for all eternity. But every sin will be punished one way or the other. So knowing that judgment day is coming helps us to be patient and helps us to not judge as we deal with the sins of each other. 
That brings us to the second principle. You need to not only recognize who the judge is, but you need to recognize that he's given us the standard of his judgment. That we know the judge's opinion on every essential area of life because he's revealed it to us. Again, in verse 1, Paul defines his calling from the Lord more specifically. He says, this is how one should regard or judge us as stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul was being criticized for all kinds of secondary, trivial things when what he was really called to be was a steward of the mysteries of God. A steward is someone who is assigned by an owner to oversee all of his possessions and his household. And so Paul was given the mysteries of God. He was to be a steward of those mysteries. As we've seen, God's mysteries aren't things that are really difficult to figure out and take a lot of insight and intelligence. They are simply truths that hadn't been revealed but now are revealed. And Paul had the the wonderful privilege of being able to reveal truth to the church and to teach those truths to the church and to sustain those truths in the church. And he is to be adjudged according to what he was assigned to do by his Lord. As an apostle, teacher, and preacher, Paul was accountable to God. And he told Timothy, his disciple, he said, present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul also alludes to the word of God in verse 6. He says, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. We know from the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that the apostle Paul was being criticized for many things that weren't even related directly to scriptural teaching. He was criticized. We saw it back in chapter 2. He was criticized for being weak in his physical presence. He was criticized for being weak in his speaking. He wasn't eloquent. He was criticized, we know later, for being a tent maker, for being poorly dressed, for not having adequate credentials to be an apostle, for being bold in his letter but not in person. And so it brings us back to the question, if we are to judge by the word of the one true judge, how many things are we judging people by that aren't based in the word. I think we would be appalled to find out how many judgments we make about other believers and people who aren't believers based not on what scripture teaches but based upon what our culture teaches or based upon what our tradition is or based on what suits our personality or preferences. Something to very seriously consider. What are the standards that I'm judging my brothers and sisters by? And particularly in this case the leaders in my fellowship, who are, what am I judging them by? Are they biblical standards, or are they coming from somewhere else? Thirdly, Paul says, you must not only recognize who the one true judge is of all people, not only must you recognize what is the standard by which the judge judges, and that we are also to judge others by, but thirdly, make sure in judging others, you always remember the grace of God. Always make sure that you're driven by the gospel. We've already seen that. But lest we miss the point, in verse 6, Paul says this. He says, he's addressing this issue of their division, of their criticism of leadership. He's addressing it that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He's pointing out the root of all of this improper judging. 
And the root of all the improper judging, surprise, surprise, is pride. They were puffed up. They were arrogant, full of themselves. And the result was, instead of doing what the Bible tells us to do, going back to the biblical standard, the Bible tells us to build one another up. Instead, what they were doing was tearing each other down. The exact opposite of what we are called to do. Criticizing improperly so that they tore other people down. And why were they doing it? The same reason you and I do it. So that we can exalt ourselves at the expense of other people. When we criticize people improperly, when we judge people improperly, we are trying to make ourselves feel better and look better while tearing down our brother or sister. And there you see why this sin is so serious. Matter of fact, I don't know about you, but it's a red flag in my life when I start criticizing people too much. I won't even notice that I've fallen into it. Maybe two, three days into it, I'll come home and I'll be talking to my wife and all of a sudden I'll realize, you know what? I'm doing nothing but criticize people lately. And that's a huge red flag in my spiritual life. That means I need to get on my knees and repent. It's a big red flag. And some people, honestly, are more critical by nature than others. And so it's more of a besetting sin for some people than others. But for all of us, it's always, when you find yourself criticizing a lot of people around you, look for the pride in your own heart that's probably driving it. Paul points us back to the gospel in verse 7. Those are very penetrating questions if you really listen to what Paul's saying there. He says, for who sees anything different in you? Different from the people you're criticizing. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you, then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He again is saying, how often does he say it here? Who do you think you are? To what degree are you a self-made man or a self-made woman? Zero degree is what he's saying. This is the key to understanding Paul. Paul was very bold. Paul was a strong leader. Paul could, could address sin more powerfully than anyone. But yet Paul always understood, as he put it in his own words, that he was the chief of sinners and the least of all the apostles in and of himself. That he was what he was only by the grace of God. And that's the key to judging other people properly. That you understand that such were some of you. You understand that apart from the grace of God, you're as bad as the worst vile sinner that you can think of. That anything good in you is there because it's a gift from God. So how then can you look down your nose at another sinner and say, how dare you be like that? How dare you say that? How dare you look like that? Back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. And then immediately what he says is, when you think you see a speck in the eye of your brother or sister, deal with the log in your own eye first. It's that gospel message. That when I see sin in somebody else's life, my response should not be, to sinfully judge that person and exalt myself and tear them down, my response should be to get on my knees and say, where have I guilty of this sin as myself? Where do I need to repent? 
I need to go to the cross. I need to go back to the gospel. I need to get my head screwed on straight so that I can humbly, gracefully, lovingly, gently go to my brother or sister and say, you know what? I love you and therefore I want to point out something in your life that I think you need to address. And the biggest mistakes we make is when we skip the step of going to repentance and the gospel first before we go to talk to our brother and sister about their sin. We must go to our brother and sister and talk to them about their sin. It's required of us. But we must do it driven by grace and not by moral superiority. How often have you been in a fight with your brother or your sister, with your parents or your children or with your husband or your wife? Have you not found out what I found out to be true is that the quickest way to get the fight resolved and to end it is to stop, take a breath, and say, okay, what did I do wrong here to get us to where we are? Some of the worst, ugliest fights I've been in is when it just goes on and on and on, and I get more and more defensive and more and more prideful, and I'm unwilling to stop for a second and see what I've done to contribute to the break in the relationship. Listen to how Jesus, now there's a parallel passage in Luke 6 where Jesus says the the same thing, judge not that you be not judged. But listen to the context of it. The context of it there gives us that whole sense of this being done in the context of the gospel. This is what he says in Luke 6, verses 36 and 37. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not that you be not judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. There's a full exposition on what it means to judge properly and to judge improperly in other words improper judgment is the opposite of being merciful improper judgment is the same as seeking to condemn others improper judgment is antithetical to forgiving others improper judgment as we've seen in this passage is putting ourselves in the place of jesus christ as the ultimate judge over our brothers and sisters Improper judgment is measuring others by worldly standards instead of measuring them by God's word. And improper judgment is driven by pride and not by the gospel. Let me stop before I close to ask this question. Maybe you're being judged by somebody else, and it hurts to be judged by somebody else. Let me ask you these three questions. Turn them around from the other perspective. Does Jesus agree with this judgment? Does your ultimate judge and their ultimate judge agree with the judgment? That's the first question you need to ask yourself. Secondly, is this a biblical standard that I'm being held to, or is it coming from somewhere else? Is it from the world? Is it from culture? Is it from tradition? Is it from preferences or subjective standards? Thirdly, how does the gospel inform and drive my response to being judged? Paul says that one day we're going to judge angels. He says that in a couple chapters. We're going to judge angels. We're in training right now to learn how to judge properly. I think we're being tested. I think the church is being tested in the culture that we're in because how we respond to the sin of our culture speaks to our view of the gospel. And we have some political candidates out there that we as Christians are very opposed to. There are political candidates out there who claim to be Christians and then live and speak in diametrically opposed ways to the way Christians should believe and speak and live. And we get angry about it. 
And there's some righteous indignation in there, but there's also some improper judging going on. I don't know about you, but I'll admit it. There is some improper judging going on according to what Paul has laid out for us here. Here's somebody who claims to be a Christian, and yet I am hopefully appropriately judging their words, their deeds, their beliefs, and comparing it to Scripture, and coming to a conclusion based on Scripture and the ultimate judge of all mankind. But what's driving my response is what I want to ask myself and ask you. What's driving our response? I was reminded uh, this week of, now, Cal Thomas. If you've ever read Cal Thomas's editorials and columns, you'll know that he has never minced words. He's never hesitant to spell out sin and error and bad thinking where he sees it. But I was reminded of several years ago when a friend of his passed away. And that friend's name was Ted Kennedy. And a lot of us wondered, how in the world is Cal Thomas good friends with Ted Kennedy? Well, he wrote a column after Ted Kennedy died, someone who he viciously opposed in terms of his political policies and positions. And he wrote a column that was honoring, in some ways, the memory of Ted Kennedy. And he got just totally ripped apart, mostly by his Christian audience. And this is the column he wrote, and I just felt like it was so appropriate to what we're wrestling today as we look at some of those leaders and potential leaders before us. This is what he said in a follow-up column. Many on the right invoke the name of Jesus on Sunday and tear down a politician whose policies they don't like the rest of the week. Tearing down policy is fine, but diminishing the value of a fellow human being simply because you don't like his politics or his personal behavior is not a good strategy for persuading him to change. It also raises the level of invectiveness, which is injurious not only to our politics, but to the one contributing the invectiveness. What, I am, trying, what am I trying to accomplish when I engage in criticism? Do I want to present superior arguments I hope my political opponent will at least consider, if not adopt? Or is my objective simply to make me feel better by engaging in moral superiority? If it's the latter, I am committing the sin of pride, which goes before all of the other sins. Just something for all of us, I think, to do a check on our own heart. The world needs to see the church responding to sin and bad policy and error and destructiveness. They need to see us responding not just with truth, biblical truth, but with a gospel-driven attitude towards judging and correcting those with whom we disagree. We need to get better. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder that all that we are and all that we have is a gift from you and that we are nothing apart from your grace. Father, I pray that you will not allow us to stop seeking to make biblical judgments about what pleases Christ and what displeases him. But Lord, make us more aware of and dependent upon the gospel of grace that we might present these things as sinners to other sinners, that we might keep the gospel at the center of our message. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.